Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Man toils in his service, acts on his behalf, and slaves for his personal gain. Even when he strives to gather food for his family, the human being does so selfishly for his family, a community readily exploited to fulfill his personal needs. The act of gathering food, which should be a gesture of unselfish love toward those in need, is reduced to a selfish act, ensnaring man in the net of his own making. When Jesus approaches the pillars, Peter, James, and John, with the addition of Andrew, he calls them to a new kind of service, one that has the power to make their labors productive for an unselfish purpose, a purpose that obliterates the distinction they draw between the needs of their family and those of the entire human family. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 241 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul refers to Peter, James, and John as the pillars, using a word that elsewhere pertains to architecture. He's fulfilling this mechanism from the Old Testament of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. But he locates the thing that holds up the earthly temple. Remember, Jesus is the head of the corner in the New Testament later when people expand on Paul's teaching in the narrative. But in Galatians, Paul, who was once called Saul, is sent to attack Jerusalem and to tear down the temple. The locus of that judgment are these three characters. Now, usually when people hear Paul say the pillars, they fall in the trap of everyone who thinks in worldly terms. The way we think about Joseph of Arimathea and Mark, we hear that he was an upstanding member of the council and we get a warm fuzzy inside and we neglect to recall that he was an upstanding member of the council that conspired against the Christ. And here we hear that these gentlemen are pillars and we think they're upstanding members of the community in Jerusalem. But that's not a positive thing. When Paul, again, talks about them being pillars, he's talking about them being pillars in something that he has to tear down. They were called in order to teach this teaching to the Jews and to the nations, but then they decided that the nations were not worthy of this teaching, that they needed to become Jews first, undermining the very teaching that they received. This is a great setup here in Matthew because we see what the original calling was and what it was supposed to be and what the original intention was and how the actions of James and Peter in Galatians 
go against precisely what they were called to do. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. There are two brothers. One has a Jewish name and a Greek name, and the other one has a Greek name. Simon comes from Shimeon, which is one of the tribes, and so it's a very typical Jewish name, meaning the one who hears. And then Peter, Petros, means rock. So he's got a Jewish name and he's got a Greek name, but then his brother's name is Andreas, which is from the word andros, which means human being, Adam, Adam in Hebrew. So we have the Jewish brother, Simon, and then we have the Greek brother, Andreas. I just find it interesting right off the bat when we already know, having read Galatians, that down the line, Jew versus Gentile is going to be the major theme. Here we have two brothers, one whose name sounds like a Jew and the other brother who sounds like a Gentile. On the one hand, Matthew is telling you that Peter, who fancies himself a special person in the Jerusalem church, is no different than any other man, any other Adam. Adam is a very important word in the Old Testament. And Adam is not the protagonist in the story. Adam is the antagonist. So on the one hand, it's making this point or drawing out this point of the entire biblical narrative that Israel is not exceptional and is just like all the other men. Israel is just an example of Adam, so to speak and is therefore as sinful as any other community. But on the other hand, there's a positive here, which flows from this juxtaposition of these two characters. Because now, whatever it is they're doing, Jesus comes on the scene and calls them together. Which means that the community that the Lord's Messiah is going to establish on his heavenly Zion, through the call of the Torah itself, this community is going to be inclusive of everyone, which is what was always intended. And if I can even push this further, Paul has his Timothy and his Titus, one who's circumcised, one who is not circumcised, therefore one who is a Jew, one who is a Gentile. We have these pairings of Jew and Gentile more than once in the New Testament, but this has special significance in the storyline since this is the first one we run across. The other thing I want to point out about the metaphor of fishing, they're fishing because they're hungry and they want to put something in their stomach. They're trying to preserve their own community. They're trying to gather food so they can eat. They want to take care of their own. They want to get what they need. I mean, it's in a way a kind of inward looking metaphor that tries to take for itself. And now Jesus is going to come along and turn the act of fishing into something outward looking and generous. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus takes this ordinary action of fishing and he transforms it metaphorically into what they're going to be doing with the gospel. It forces us to no longer see fishing as simply fishing for food. It's interesting that Jesus would go specifically after fishermen for them to act like fishermen for the sake of the gospel. So it's not okay to fish for the sake of your own stomach. You fish for the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus transforms this into not a physical act of fishing and getting an animal out of the water, but for bringing human beings together into a community. 
It's to bring them into your care. It's to expand the borders of your community well beyond Jerusalem. And again, this idea of the pillars raises the question, are those borders expanded by an assault on the temple? And I think the answer we discovered in Mark was yes. Remember, we read Mark out of order on the podcast. The answer is yes. In order for Jesus to carry the Torah, which is the net that catches fish for God's purposes, in order for him to carry it out beyond the Jordan, the hekal of the tomb had to be exploded open. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So it's this word that will appear later in Mark and is emphasized in Mark, ephtheos, ephthes, immediately, meaning there was no debate about whether or not they should or shouldn't. Simon here was living up to the meaning of his name. So in this moment in the text, he's correct. He is listening and obeying and acting on literally the level of an impulse. There's no distance, as we like to say on the podcast, between the utterance of the commandment and his next action. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Couple of key elements here. Number one, they were with their father. Number two, they were mending something broken. Remember the nets that Peter and Andrew used, like the nets that are now used by James and John, were made by the hand of man. When Jesus called Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they left those nets behind and they're going to use a net that's not made by the hand of man. So it's problematic for James and John and it suits the function of James, Jacob, because obviously while all the nations are sinful, Jacob Israel was called out to be made as an example of sin so that everyone would understand what sin is so that all could gather together at the mercy of God's instruction. It's interesting here that they're trying to fix the thing that they made. So Jesus is intervening to stop that worldly toil. It doesn't produce anything. It's the work of men's hands. He's intervening now once again to call them. When you leave a father, you're leaving a teaching. As they leave Zebedee, their father, they go and they follow Jesus, who's going to be offering another teaching, which you said, Father, is the net they're going to use to bring in the human fish that they're going to be creating this community out of. And you can't forget Genesis also when you hear Father, because it is this tension between the worldly seed, the human seed of your father in the flesh, and the seed of God's instruction, which comes from the heavenly father in Matthew. So here, they're mending something worldly, and they're clinging to their patrilineage. And Jesus is saying, leave your patrilineage behind. Remember, this is Matthew. It began with a dismantling of Israel's patrilineal heritage. And now Jesus is challenging Jacob Israel. It's a metaphoric name. He's challenging Jacob Israel and John. Once again, leave it behind. Just put down what you're working on with your hands and leave the home of your earthly father because he's not your true father in Genesis. Your true father is the one who sent me through the line of Isaac, the child of the promise, to bring you this word of hope. 
which I would like you to carry out to the others. On a literary level, it is funny. Why do we have to talk about Simon and Andrew casting a net, but James and John mending a net? Peter and Andrew, whether you like them or not, are working, they're doing the difficult work of bringing in the fish. James and John are sitting on the sidelines creating the net, mending the net, but they're not actually catching anything. They're not even trying to catch something at this point. You have to do both as a fisherman. You have to have a tight net, but for heaven's sake, you gotta throw it into the water. It's interesting also that the pillars are three. We have four apostles here. The pillars are three, Peter, James, and John. And within the pillars, Peter and James represent two axes. And they're the ones that actually have their own little conflict that causes Paul to eventually excommunicate Peter, which is striking that Peter is the locus of Paul's anger, more so than James in the epistles. But here, the addition of Andrew again is striking because Andrew, as you said, Andreas, is Adam. And so you have these characters that represent the church in Jerusalem, but the nations are added to the collection. Andrew, in this sense here in Matthew, stands out as an add-in to the pillars, which means ultimately what we hear again and again in the New Testament, that God's ire is universal. It's easy for a Gentile to see the wrath of God against Jerusalem and Matthew and say, ha ha, the Gentiles are right. But that's not what scripture is saying. Consistently, that's not what scripture is saying. To understand scripture, you have to understand a traditional parent a traditional parent doesn't get angry because of something that happened. They just decide to be angry because the children need instruction. And that's much more sane and much more humane than the abusive way people react to their children today out of anger or frustration or ideology or whatever it is that's guiding their decision making. A wise parent, when they actually are angry, keeps their mouth shut and waits for the right time, the appointed time, to play out their anger in a way that's instructive to the child, not abusive, not unuseful because you're simply acting out your ego. Paul opposed Peter to his face, even though it was James who sent the spies. Peter is the one who's trying to do the work, who's easily misled. He's the one throwing the net. James is the one who's intricately mending and creating the teaching, the net, that's going to capture as many fish as he possibly can. If you're wise, you only yell at somebody because you think they're gonna change their mind. If you know they're not gonna change their mind, you don't bother, you don't waste your energy. Paul does not waste his energy trying to fix James, but he does spend his energy trying to teach Peter in front of everybody. The fact that Peter is the one who casts the net and James is the one who mends his net, I think, can be played out as a metaphor later on. We'll see how this goes, but you can see how this affects the way that they approach other human beings and the way that their teaching brings people into the community. It's interesting also that James was the head of the community in Jerusalem, so one would expect Paul to take out his wrath, so to speak, his functional wrath, to take it out on James, but he takes it out on Peter. It's an important observation. The other point, though, about this calculated wrath, I mean, scripture is calculated wrath. It's not actual wrath. 
It's a functional wrath. It can turn at any time. So God could express his wrath against Peter, who represents his people, but he could turn and express his wrath towards Andrew. That's the point of the genocide, so to speak, in Deuteronomy, though they wouldn't have used that term in the ancient world. God took out the people that were here before you, and now he's offering you this place. That means that he could take you out. So you cannot hear this and say, ha, they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. No, everybody is ultimately Adam. Israel is called out, and I'm really hitting on the point that Father Paul made Tuesday because it flows very nicely with what we're hearing today in Matthew, Richard. Israel is, as we hear in Romans, made an example of. This is what man is. So here the pillars are trying to say, those are those men over there, but we're something different. And God is saying through his teaching, no, see Israel, this is what men are. And all the men, Andreas, all of the human beings are the same thing. All of you are deserving of my ire, and I can turn on any one of you at any time. And here's the catch in scripture, or if you will, the blessing. I can turn on you for your sake. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The boat is the community into which they're trying to catch something. They're abandoning that community, and they are abandoning the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So here they're acting correctly. We can hope for the best for James and John, James being Jacob, but we know that Jacob is Jacob. Jacob does what he wants to do no matter what God tells him to do. So we'll see how it ends up for them. Jacob will stumble. Peter will stumble. Everybody stumbles. Paul stumbled. But I think it's helpful and good news because we can learn from their mistakes. Not lift them up as examples, but learn from their mistakes so that when we stumble in the same way, it's not that we're not going to stumble, we would recognize our stumbling and immediately recognize how Scripture can get us out of the net we've made with our own hands. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.